Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Spark Podcast. We're glad to have you here. I'm Emily Kleiman, your host for the day, um, and I'm really glad to be here with two of our energy experts at ICF. Um, so let's talk about energy. Uh, as we all know, the energy industry is one of the most highly regulated sectors of our economy, and it's one where government policy has an enormous and really direct impact. So. That being said, uh, we all know elections can have profound consequences for all of the businesses, advocacy organizations, and re regulators across the energy spectrum. Uh, the questions that we'll be asking today really focus on what should energy professionals take away from the election results, what should they watch out for, and what changes might be coming. We have some really great guests today, uh, Chris McCracken, who leads our power practice, and Matt Robeson from our distributed energy practice, who's also a former Capitol Hill staffer. So lots of really great and diverse perspectives and insights that I know they'll be sharing today. Um, so welcome. Thanks very much, Emily. Good to be here. So Thanks, we, Emily. Yeah, so we want to talk about some big takeaways here. And to start off, Chris, uh, what's your take on what the election might mean for renewables? So I think if you look at just the ballot initiatives that happen around the country, there was clearly some resistance to expanding renewable generation through direct standards or even indirectly through pricing on carbon emissions. And so while you had one preliminary win, I guess I'd call it in Nevada, um, with the first pass of two required passes of the Nevada um, RPS, 50% RPS, um, you had two other cases where the renewables did not fare as well. And so in Arizona, for example, um, a 50% RPS standard there, renewable portfolio standard by 2030, was not successful. And Washington's second attempt, the state of Washington's second attempt at a carbon pricing scheme uh, or carbon pricing approach was also not successful. So in, in both of those cases where you had opportunities for direct support by the public for renewable energy or supporting clean energy through carbon pricing, uh, you didn't see success there. Yeah, so it, it sounds like there might be a big but coming here. I think that's right. With the changes in the state houses and the governorships, as well as in the state legislatures in some cases, there's certainly the potential for support of renewable energy in several states. You know, during the campaign, there were 11 Democratic candidates for governor who supported some version of a goal of 100% renewables by 2050. And so that's a long-term goal and certainly an aggressive one and, and far beyond what most states are talking about now, save for California, say. Um, and in the election, we actually saw seven, seven governor's seats flip from Republican to Democrat. Now, the specifics of every state are gonna be a little bit different, but you know, with taking New Jersey as an, as an example, um, in the election last year, you had a flip from Republican to Democrat, and there were several results related to clean energy that have fallen out of that. Can you, and so, tell, us, sure. can you tell us a little bit more about what some of those examples were? Sure, and so so Governor Murphy now, who took over from Governor Christie, um, since he's been in over the past year, he's made attempts to reinstate the state in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is the Northeast Mid-Atlantic Carbon Cap and Trade Program. So they're, they're working toward that. Um, he signed legislation to mandate um, that utilities obtain 50% of their electricity from renewable sources by 2030. And he's also made an appointment to the Public Utility Commission um, that's going to have that commission now um, leaning towards potentially mandating a program to incentivize rooftop solar. And so 
you know, if you take that as an example, and we don't want to paint with too broad of a political brush here, um, there could certainly be some support uh, in those states where you had those flips of governorships uh, toward renewable energy. So where in where across the U.S. has that happened, and can you give us some more uh, cases where we could look look forward to that? Sure. So a few examples. Um, you know, so in Michigan there was a Democratic pickup. So Governor-elect Whitmer is in favor of a 100% renewables goal, um, and has also stated support for starting a climate change office. Um, and so that can certainly uh, show some momentum there in Michigan. Colorado's new governor also supported uh, changing the RPS to 100% by 2040. Um, and you've got a similar story with respect to RPSs in New Mexico and Illinois, potentially. And then Janet Mills, the governor-elect in Maine, has said she'd let Governor LePage's wind moratorium expire. And so wind developers could certainly see some upside there. So bottom line, and pardon my pun, but it sounds like there might be a possibility of some tailwind for renewables. Um, and that's really in the form of a number of states potentially getting a lot more ambitious on RPS. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, I think that's right. So even though you saw some challenges to the ballot measures, um, and so it's not necessarily a hurricane force tailwind, um, you certainly see with the state house changes some momentum towards uh, renewables. You know, and, and I'd like to throw in another possibility at the federal level to sort of connect that renewables dot. Absolutely, go ahead. So, um, you know, if you look at the federal level, the change in control of the House from Republican to Democrat doesn't look like it's that big a deal uh, on renewables, just at first blush. And part of that's because legislative gridlock has been so bad in Washington, and split control of the chambers now and, and, and with the presidency isn't exactly going to improve things. You know, and on top of that, just this morning, uh, New York Representative Paul Tonko is expected to be the new chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee's Environmental Panel, said in an interview with the newspaper Politico that his goal would be to ensure that the top priority will be a bold response to climate change. But you look at some history here, and there are a lot of parallels with our current situation and the outcome of the election on Tuesday with what happened the last time Democrats held the House. Um, and you saw a lot of those Democrats that came in in the 2006 election coming from rural, more conservative districts, which is what happened this week. And one of the things that occurred was uh, that House decided to make a carbon cap-and-trade bill an early major legislative priority. They managed to pass it in the House, and then it died in the Senate. And there was a lot of concern from the Democrats in that chamber at the time that they really had to go out on a bit of a political limb in what was ultimately a failed effort. So I'd expect to see a lot of hesitancy to go big on any kind of energy or climate legislation this time around. But one issue where you could potentially see some interest is an ITC PTC extension. So Matt, just for our listeners who might not know, uh, ITC and PTC? The ITC is the investment tax credit. It's usually applied to solar, although technically it can apply to wind as well. Uh, and it's a 30% tax credit, uh, again, usually for solar systems on residential and commercial properties. It's one of the factors that analysts credit with all the growth we've seen in solar. It's been an annualized about 60% a year. The PTC is the production tax credit. It applies to wind, geothermal, uh, closed-loop biomass, and solar system is not claiming the ITC. And it's a per kilowatt hour credit for generation from those sources. 
And wind developers credit that incentive with helping to drive up scale in manufacturing, and that's one of the reasons that they believe that wind power costs have gone down by about 67% in the last seven years. So, so you think there may be some action on both of these at the federal level? I think that the conditions appear to be there. And the thinking here is, look, especially given the experience on that cap-and-trade bill, uh, 10 years ago, okay, nine, 10 years ago, and the current political realities in the Senate. Um, I think it's unlikely that we're ultimately going to see any kind of a major run at a, a big climate bill, um, you know, a, a big carbon-driven bill. At the same time, environmental groups just spent totally unprecedented sums on this election. They're going to be pushing hard for some real legislative wins. And so one area where I could see people's eye turning is that ITC, PTC, and extending those tax credits. Those are both currently in the process of being stepped down under current law. They're set to expire in the next few years. This is the kind of thing that could be relatively more palatable to some of those more conservative Democrats that have just come in. It's a tax incentive, um, and it's really good for Midwest members from both parties in states with a lot of wind. So, Matt, uh, now, oops, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So Matt, can you describe, is there, is there a lot of support here? Um, kind of what's, what's the status, um, both historically and moving forward? It's a mixed bag. I mean, there was not a lot of support for those tax credits in last year's big tax bill, although they both survived. But with this new Congress, with a president uh, gearing up to run for re-election, looking for some tangible accomplishments, um, and there's going to be an awful lot of Democratic senators who, for some reason or another, can't think of why, uh, may be visiting Iowa in the next 18 months. Uh, Iowa has a lot of wind. You could begin to connect those dots and, and, and see a constructive atmosphere for ITC-PTC extension. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. So let's look at the rest of the generation picture. What about some of the more traditional fuels and the plants that run on those fuels? So I think the story with traditional fuels, and here we're talking about non-renewable or fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal, I think it's a bit more mixed, actually, after the election. You know, in addition to the Washington state referendum I mentioned earlier on carbon pricing, Colorado actually didn't pass two initiatives that would have restricted oil and gas drilling. The first would have been a limitation on drilling on state-owned land, and so that didn't pass. The second would have required new wells to be at least 2,500 feet from occupied buildings and other vulnerable areas. So that also didn't pass. Um, then on top of that, at the, at the federal level, you've got the Republicans picking up seats in the US Senate and being generally supportive of the administration's push to be more flexible with respect to fossil fuel generation and where you might have that mining and, and drilling and those production needs. However, on the other side, you've got the Democrats now in control of the House, and that can mean a couple things. One is that we would definitely expect a different view with respect to oversight of energy and environmental policy at the agencies. And so we've already heard incoming committee chairs say as much. And that could put pressure on further moves at the departments to ease restrictions on coal mining or to expand drilling access in areas. The other thing that Congress obviously does is controls budgets. And with the Democratic House, you now got them in negotiations with the Republican Senate with respect to the budgeting. And so, you know, Congress in the past has been able to sneak directions into government spending before, 
now to the extent that um, you have Democrats and Republicans working together in those negotiations, there may be things that are more controversial that really results, you know, leave us more with the status quo rather than an expansion in production. So I think the bottom line here is that while traditional fuels avoided some of the negatives in terms of ballot initiatives, the federal outlook has gone from constructive for those sectors to a bit more neutral and with a bit more uncertainty than there was before. So aside from generation sources, what about other energy infrastructure, other energy investment? Do we have any indications about the outlook there? Uh, sure, I'll jump in on that one. Um, you know, we've been hearing some early rumblings that one area where the Democratic House and the Republican administration and Senate could work together is on infrastructure. Uh, both President Trump and the Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, brought up infrastructure as a key focus in their press conferences earlier this week. And of course, the last time there was a big federal initiative on infrastructure was the stimulus bill, um, ARA, which is coming up on uh, 10 years ago. And that provided a significant amount of money in energy. Uh, it included $10 billion for modernizing the grid, uh, $3 billion for R&D and to carbon capture for coal plants. So, I mean, look, the, the recent history of Washington isn't exactly reassuring when it comes to the prospects for any legislation. But if you had to pick an early candidate for something that could get done, infrastructure would be one of your bets. And the other thing that tends to happen in Washington is when there's momentum to do something, the people whose job it is to write up the details go looking for what's available off the shelf. Uh, so one guide they'll look at is what was done last time with ARA. That's one indication that an infrastructure push could well include some significant support for the grid. Um, another source is what plans, uh, blueprints are available from the agencies. And the Department of Energy has a grid monitor ports. And that gives a, a pretty good guide to what's needed in grid mod and when. And, and we know that Trump administration has been interested in reliability. Um, and so there's a, there's a crossover of interest there. Um, and just a final data point that I'd throw in there is um, the interview I mentioned earlier with that likely incoming chairman of the House subcommittee where he said that they're going to be looking into an agenda that would advance efficiency and grid modernization and maybe rolling it all into a larger infrastructure bill. So all things being equal, one takeaway uh, from this week in my mind is that it could well be supportive of, of infrastructure generally, especially more funds for grid modernization. Yeah, so I, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, you know, and I'll just open it up to both of you. You know, are there any other really big takeaways from the election you'd like to point to um, in terms of how it affects the energy industry and energy professionals? So I can start with that one. Um, you know, I think voters are showing that there is a focus in their minds on energy costs and reliability and sort of the traditional things you'd expect from an electricity system, um, even when it comes in the face potentially of some of these, you know, environmental measures or renewable energy measures that they might be um, in favor of. Another data point are two separate ballot initiatives in Florida and California that fell out in a different way than those. And so, you know, Florida amended its state's constitution to ban offshore and gas and oil drilling in state waters. Um, however, that was paired with a prohibition on indoor vaping. So that was sort of an interesting pairing. Um, California rejected an initiative to roll back its gas tax. Um, however, there, 
you know, it was well, widely known that the revenues from that went toward infrastructure development for roads and bridges. So in both of those cases, well, it sort of ran counter to the, the trend we'd seen in Colorado and Arizona and ballot measures. Um, the measure itself wasn't flying solo, it had some sort of corresponding policy or impact associated with it that was attractive to the voters potentially. And so if you connect those dots, it seems like voters are sending kind of a mixed message here on carbon, climate, and the environment. Well, they may have an interest in advancing decarbonization or renewable energy goals, which are the types of bigger policy goals that were expressed by some of the new governors that got elected. They still really value reliability, price, jobs, economic development, etc., which really came into focus more on the specific ballot initiatives. And so that sets up a really interesting situation where policymakers, regulators, um, utilities, as they try and advance these types of goals uh, for renewable energy development, for, for carbon control, they're really going to have to be attuned to how those fit with those traditional values of low electricity prices and reliability. And so the, the bottom line is that as we look ahead, policymakers are really going to have to thread that needle when it comes to integrating renewables and mitigating costs at the state level. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would just add a, um, a distributed energy perspective. Um, you know, you could see the kind of dynamic that, that Chris just talked about sort of being a mixed bag for distributed energy resources, DER. Um, you know, one of the things that states with relatively high DER penetrations have been grappling with, um, and federal agencies as well, is what kind of grid modernization investments do you need to safely and reliably operate in a higher DER environment? With DER, I'm talking about distributed generation, solar, storage, um, also included, you know, electric vehicles, uh, also demand-side management measures, um, demand response, energy efficiency. Um, you know, and those put pressures on the kinds of IT systems you need, what kinds of inverters you need, what kinds of visibility into your distribution system that you need for that safe and reliable operation. So, you know, if you look at the two messages that voters seem to be simultaneously sending here that, that Chris was alluding to, we like renewables, we want to fight climate change, but we also care about the bills we pay and reliability, not to mention local jobs in places that have more oil and gas development it probably does set up an interesting conundrum for policymakers about how to strike that right balance in enabling more distributed generation and hitting carbon goals and investing in the infrastructure we need for a modern grid, but also keeping the lid on prices and maintaining that safe and reliable service. Um, so, you know, if you, if you played that out, um, that kind of dynamic could be relatively supportive for things like energy efficiency programs, demand response programs, building efficiency, the, the kinds of approaches that are relatively low-cost carbon-cutting measures and that can help you hit climate targets at, at a, a relatively lower price point. You could also see some momentum for things like distribution non-wires alternatives, which about half the states in the country are currently somewhere in, in the stages of, of piloting or deploying. Um, and those are alternatives to traditional infrastructure investments that use DER instead of poles and wires. And in some circumstances, they can be cost savings. Um, you know, and, and finally, you could see a, a greater need for states and utilities to try and get a handle on their pathway for grid modernization. 
um, and, and really trying to figure out what investments are they going to need and what sequence in order to integrate renewables and get value out of them and maintain reliability all without breaking the bank. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great place to end uh, to end on that note. So um, thank you, Matt and Chris, for joining us today and for your insights. Um, definitely a lot a lot to think about um, as it relates to the election and the implications for the energy industry. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Spark. Um, if you're interested in learning more. Um, or you have your own thoughts and comments about what the election has meant for the energy industry, just reach out and tag us at ICF Energy on Twitter or at ICF on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks so much. Bye.